and welcome to the Informed Traveler podcast, part of the Informed Traveler radio show, which is heard each week on Chorus Radio. It's a travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveler. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. There's been a lot going on in the cruise industry lately, from updates on the Alaska season to vaccine requirements. So in this week's podcast, we'll check in with the cruise guru, David Yeskel, in a few minutes and get an update on what's new in the cruise industry and get some insight on the new ships that are being launched as well. And it's been 35 years since the disaster at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine. And since the HBO miniseries about Chernobyl has aired, it's become quite a tourist attraction. So later in the podcast... We'll find out what it's like to do a tour of the Chernobyl site 35 years later. But we're going to start things out this week talking about travel rewards. Since the demand for travel will likely increase in the coming months, the same can probably be said for using up all those travel reward miles and points that you've been accumulating throughout the pandemic. So is it better to use them now instead of later? We'll find out. Joining us now to help answer that question is Patrick Soike. He is the founder of Rewards Canada. The website is rewardscanada.ca. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Randy. Pleasure to be on your show again. It's been a long time since we've chatted. Um, There's a lot of pent-up travel demand out there, and along with it is a lot of unused travel rewards, including me, myself, and I'm sure you have a lot as well. Uh, There's a story from Travel Pulse uh, last week, though, talking about uh, something I haven't really thought of. There's a lot of demand, only so much supply. There's only so many seats out there, so it's uh, another case of... Is it better to book now rather than later? Or what are your thoughts on this? Because of the pandemic, and not many people traveling or using their points and miles for flights and hotels and, and other travel-related items, everybody's been building up their balances in their frequent flyer programs, frequent dress programs, on their proprietary credit card programs, you name it. They've, they've all been at, adding up. Um, so yeah, so now the question is, now that so many people have so many more points and miles and, and travel slowly opening up, is there going to be a surge in, in I guess, demand in, in booking those reward flights and, and hotel stays? And is there enough uh, supply to, to meet those? Uh, so that's definitely the question here. And yeah, I mean, it's always better to book earlier than later so you don't get disappointed. Um, but that's also kind of tough right now, especially here in Canada, because we don't know when a lot of r- restrictions are going to be lifted. And if you're going to be traveling outside of Canada, what are the requirements to uh, the place you're traveling to? I know Europe's slowly opening up, mm-hmm. um, but who knows what's going to happen if there's going to be you know, a fourth wave and, and things close down again. So, so it's really a, a tough call as to whether you, you book earlier or kind of uh, risk it and gamble and wait. And I, I think right now we're kind of in a position where I think for Canadians over the next six months, I think we're kind of, it's kind of middle ground. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're safe, you're safe either way. Um, but we've seen such a surge of traffic or uh, increase in travel in the U.S. that it's a little bit different. So, you know, if you're looking to travel outside of Canada, like going Canada to the U.S., if things do open up like by this fall or something, um, yeah, you might want to start looking right now and just kind of proactively book. The good thing is a lot of times with points miles, especially hotels, when you book on points, those you can usually cancel just like you could uh, their best flexible rates up to 24 hours before. I mean, some resorts may be 
seven days or 14 days before. But, you know, make just make sure you're aware of all the rules beforehand before booking that, you know, oh, this is what's going to happen if I do cancel. Yeah, it's not just flights. It is hotels and car rentals and other things like that. I think we kind of sometimes get stuck on uh, flights only, but there are other things that you can use your reward uh, points for. Um, I'm using uh, Aeroplan for an example here. I just went on the Aeroplan site. It, it has changed in in the past, and you would you would know this better than me, though. There was only a certain number of seats available that you could use your points on. Now they just kind of direct you to their general booking site, and um, it gives you the amount of points needed for a specific uh, any specific flight. Right. That's right. Yeah. So what they've opened up. I mean, what Aeroplan used to do is they they years ago did open up kind of and any seat option, they call it their market fare rewards, and you'd pay a lot, you know, a lot more or a lot less points depending on the cash price. And now they fully integrated that into their system when they relaunched Aeroplan uh, in November of 2020. So now when you go on their booking site, Air Canada, there's a little tab, you hit dollars or points, you click points. And as long as there's seats open on a flight, they will give you a point amount. So we're not seeing any more of that, that limitation of, oh, there's only so many seats per site or per flight. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're seeing is, is limitations on, you know, how many seats are at the lowest price, how many are at this price, it's because now basically the point amount is tied into um, kind of the cash price on a flight. They call it dynamic pricing, and there's pros and cons to it. The pros is that, yeah, you have access to any seat at any time, whichever flight you want. Um, you may not get those, you may not get those annoying uh, four uh, flights with four connecting cities. And yes, <laughs> yeah, that's the only flight available. Flight. <laughs> yeah, you can find the dates that you want. Um, and, and one pro is like um, is that you may pay less points. Like for example, right now, our Canada is running a sale on signature class, which is their business class for travel within Canada. And because it's a seat sale, the points price was reflected to the cash price. So actually, right now, you can be redeeming less points for business class flights within Canada than you normally kind of been accustomed to. And then on the on the flip side, the cons of the points being tied to cash price is that if a flight is super full and there's only two seats left, and those those two seats are selling for you know a pretty penny, mm-hmm. you're also going to pay a lot more points for that. But then right. so uh, they, back then, those that flight wouldn't even be available, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you have that option. Does WestJet work the same way? Uh, kind of the same way. I mean, they're open to any because WestJet dollars is a, a, a fixed value currency. Basically, one WestJet dollar equals one dollar off your flight. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can redeem for any flight as long as there are seats as well. So um, again, it, it it works more like a discount program. So you can buy any seat as long as there's a seat available. If it costs two hundred fifty dollars Canadian, you could redeem. Say if you have if you have two hundred WestJet dollars, you could redeem your two hundred WestJet dollars towards that. Uh, $250 flight and pay $50 cash. Uh, same thing, if that flight's $750, you can still redeem your $200 to it and you're paying $550 cash. The moral of the story is, though, uh, if you want to book for later in the year or early into 2022, uh, best to start searching around now, though, right? Yeah, I would definitely start researching now and seeing what the availability and, and points amounts look like. Um, you know, as travel returns, pricing will get higher. So right now, you may be able to lock in some of those lower points rates or lower, even lower price amounts, like if you're booking on WestJet. Um, but definitely it, it really depends where you're traveling to mm-hmm. and, and knowing those restrictions and, and just kind of wishing that we had a crystal ball. We could see what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be nice too. <laughs> Patrick Soik yeah, I mean, is the founder of Rewards Canada. RewardsCanada.ca, lots of information there and a uh, wealth of information from yourself, Patrick. Uh, always a pleasure to chat. Thank you. Great. Thank you.
Well, there's been a lot going on in the cruise industry lately, from news on the Alaska season to vaccine requirements. So I thought it'd be a good idea to get an update on what's new in the cruise industry, plus chat about some of the new ships that are coming out. And whenever we talk about cruising, we like to invite our favorite cruise guy, David Yeskel, to join us on the podcast. He's known as the Cruise Guru. You can find him on Twitter, at Cruise Guru, and his website is oceancruise.guru. Hi, David. Hey, Randy. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always fun to chat with you about cruising, uh, one of my favorite uh, forms of travel. A couple of u- updates I'd like to get to, though. Let's start with a, a story you tweeted out a few days ago about uh, the U.S. Congress allowing the cruise ships to bypass Canadian ports in Alaska. Yeah, so the uh, Congress passed a waiver, uh, and the president will likely sign it very soon, um, that allows cruises, um, foreign-flagged cruise ships sailing from Washington to visit Alaska and back to Washington without touching a foreign port, and that would be, of course, uh, typically Victoria or Vancouver. Um, so this was a big deal because the cruise lines were kind of hampered by the Canadian cruise ban, which, as you know, runs through February of 2022. Mm-hmm. And um, because of this Passenger Vessel Services Act, cruise lines had to stop in a Canadian port. So they were looking for a workaround. It looks like this waiver would be the workaround as long as cruises can start up. <laughs> yeah, all, all other things considered equal. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And, and they're kind of looking for July because if you if you waited longer than that, really, uh, like the, the window for Alaska cruising is, is pretty small, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. So, you know, starts in May and early, late September, early October. So, so this might give them about a half season. And, and the lines, Princess, Hong America, and Carnival are each going to start with one ship. So it's not going to be, of course, you know, the full complement of, mm-hmm. of what the normal Alaska fleets would be. And um, even then, it's going to be uh, tight to get it going because it really takes three months to bring a ship from what's called cold layup, where they are now, mm-hmm. back. So this would give them about two months. So they're going to get ready and try to make it happen. Good news for Alaska, not so much for the uh, Canadian ports, yeah. though. Right, right. Unfortunately for, for the Canadian ports, it doesn't look great. Uh, another uh, image I saw on Twitter was uh, crew members. I can't remember what ship it was, though, getting vaccines. So it seems to me that's the route if you want to go on a cruise or even work on a cruise, you need a, need a vaccine, right? Yeah, so for pretty much all the cruises that are starting up this summer, there's a vaccine mandate for both guests and crew. So the cruise lines are doing their best to to vaccinate, uh, get their crew vaccinated either in their home countries or once they get back aboard and, you know, in whatever country they're closest to. And um, there's going to be a vaccine mandate for guests. And and that really comes out of, obviously, they, the cruise lines need to get it right this time, right? Mm-hmm. It was a spectacular PR disaster for them uh, during the shutdown. And they need to get it right this time. And to do that, um, you know, mass vaccination is the answer, really. And they've also surveyed, the cruise lines have surveyed their past passengers, and the large majority indicate they feel better about a vaccine mandate. So it's going to give them the confidence to get back aboard, and that's good for business. Yeah, I would think so, too. If I was going on a cruise, I'd want to make sure that everybody else is vaccinated as well. Uh, well, How long will it take before they're at full capacity, you think? 
So I, I think it's going to be a matter of months, actually. So the, the, the initial cruises will probably start out at maybe 60%, 70% capacity. They'll see how that goes, you know, get a little experience under their belt for a few sailings, and then adjust that as necessary. But, but I have a feeling the, the reduced capacity cruises are going to continue for at least, at least a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of space on the ships then. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's talk space, about but... some of the uh, new ships that are coming out. Uh, lots of hype about the Carnival Mardi Gras. Yeah, so this is a new class of ship for Carnival it's called the Excellence Class. Um, going to be the first cruise ship to have a roller coaster on the top deck, <laughs> uh, which is pretty cool. I would um, think so. Yeah, a bunch of different neighborhoods on board with different themes, so it's going to be a really different look and feel for Carnival. And, um, you know, the ship was going to be launched, of course, months ago, but now it looks like a, uh, a July launch, and there's a lot of excitement, uh, you know, built around it. And I, th- am I correct? This is uh, a ship that's going to be powered by natural gas. LNG. Yes, yeah. Right. This, this is Carnival's first LNG-powered ship. Um, their sister line, Costa, also under the Carnival Corp umbrella, um, cruises the Costa Smeralda, which is the you know the first LNG-powered cruise ship. And um, this will be Carnival's first LNG-powered ship, so it's exciting and groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to be outdone, Royal Caribbean, Odyssey of the Seas, they, they like to compete against each, each other, don't they? They do. They do. They really go head-to-head, and that's a good thing for, uh, for us cruisers. Yeah, exactly. Because, uh, they keep upping the ante in, in, the, in the mass market uh, megaship wars. So Odyssey of the Seas was supposed to be the ship that was going to be cruising from Israel. So it, was coming, it came straight from the shipyard, just launched, and was in Haifa ready to start a series of cruises for fully vaccinated Israelis um, starting soon. But because of the unrest there, mm-hmm. Royal Caribbean decided to pull the ship out. It's now on its way to Florida, and they haven't announced the restart date, but it'll be, it'll be starting cruises from Florida. Is it good to be on a brand new ship? Sometimes, yeah. I, yeah. I think it's great to be on a brand new ship. So there's always, you know, the first few cruises are considered kind of shakedown cruises. Yeah. Um, not everything works perfectly, but but it's exciting and it's kind of fun. And even for the passengers, you know, you, you kind of see what works, what doesn't right away, and and what doesn't work typically gets fixed pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, you know, aside from a few blips on past shakedown cruises, um, it's kind of a fun experience, and a lot of people look to be on the first cruise. Well, and the crew members get excited, too, don't they? Which just adds sure, to yeah. the hype, right? They really do, yeah. A couple of others, MSC Shore and uh, Valiant Lady. Yeah, so uh, MSC Cruises, MSC Seashore is a new ship that will be sailing from Miami, and Virgin Voyages, Valiant Lady, um, are also going to see you know their first cruises this year. So Virgin Voyages, as you know, launched their first ship, Scarlet Lady, last mm. year just before the shutdown. It completed a couple of preview sailings, was ready to go into revenue. Timing is everything. <laughs> timing, and really was a victim of really bad timing, unfortunately. So the, so so Scarlet Lady will kind of get reintroduced, and then Valiant Lady a little bit later. And when's your next cruise going to be? So I think my next cruise is going to be on one of Seaborne ships, um, either Seaborne Odyssey in Greece or Seaborne Ovation. I'm sorry, Seaborne Ovation in Greece or Seaborne Odyssey in the Caribbean. Both are starting up in July. Um, these will be some of the first cruises marketed to North Americans. So I plan to be on one of those sailings, uh, hopefully in July, and 
can't wait to uh, to experience it and to report on the experience and, and come back on and talk to you about yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. I'll be excited to hear about it. Uh, David Yeskel is the Cruise Guru. You can follow him on Twitter, at Cruise Guru, his website, oceancruise.guru. Uh, always fun to chat cruising with you, David. Thank you. Thanks, Randy. Same here. Well, it's been 35 years since the disaster at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine, and now it's become a popular tourist destination, mostly due to an HBO miniseries. So joining us now to talk about visiting Chernobyl, what it's like, and what you need to know to tour there is Vincent Reese. He is the founder of Cobblestone Freeway Tours. They specialize in tours to Ukraine, and their website is cobblestonefreeway.ca. Hi, Vince. Hi, Randy. Good to talk to you again. Yes. Hard to believe it's been 35 years since the disaster that occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine. You specialize in tours to Ukraine. How many people uh, ask about visiting there? Oh, uh, yes. It it has been 35 years, and and it was a big tragedy. And uh, ever since the HBO series came out, Mm -hmm. we've had lots of people asking and uh, people come from all around the world um, to visit the Chernobyl uh, exclusion zone in the old town of Pripyat, the uh, the ghost town, and see the. It's it, well, I went, and it's just fascinating, you know. And people are just fascinated by it. It's a bit on the edge of tourism, sort of called dark tourism. Mm-hmm. People sort of kind of frown upon it on one hand, but on the other hand, they're fascinated by it. Uh, so we had a group of journalists, actually, and I got a chance to go along and spend the day there. And it was the most strangest and fascinating day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and it is a touchy subject for many people. You know, a lot of people did die there. Uh, it is a tragic yeah. event. So, so we got to keep that in perspective. But at the same time, uh, it has become quite an attraction, mostly because of that uh, HBO okay. uh, miniseries. Uh, and there's a whole generation that hasn't heard about what happened. So do you know the right. history a little bit that, that we can touch upon? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in the history of that period, except for that I know, you know, um, I grew up and hearing about and knowing about all the, the repercussions of the of the incident. So um, it, what happened was the nuclear power plant, I won't try to pretend to use the technical terminology about what happened, but things went bad and it exploded and uh, they, it was a very big disaster and they had to get it under control and firemen had to go in there and a lot of people, you know, scientists and first responders lost their lives and uh, the radiation like not a lot of people actually died in the in the in the in the immediate uh, disaster but mm. it was the repercussions the radiation after the fact and it didn't just affect the people that were right there in the town like i know people that were there and they're fine uh but uh you know depending where the cloud drifted so mm. Uh, and a lot of it fell on the forest around the area. And uh, so, you know, they call it the red forest now. And when they took us through that forest, they were like, you know what, just stay on the path. And they told us to sort of, um, you know, not touch anything. And uh, they had a Geiger counter the whole time. So you could sort of see and know what where the radiation was. 
And interestingly enough, it sounds all a little bit doom and gloom, but they said the amount of radiation you're, you're exposed to on a day trip uh, to the site is about the same as you're exposed to on one transatlantic flight. Really? Yeah. Hmm. yeah and interestingly, they show the radiation uh, count when you're downtown Kiev before you leave. And when you get into the forest there and the town in around there, it's actually less radiation than downtown Kiev hmm. because of all the, you know, radio yeah. waves floating around and stuff like that. So, um, but then they would also show us like, you know, where, where some things started to get more radioactive. So we were, we were watching that counter all day. It was fascinating. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Uh, so what do you need to know? If you want to visit there, obviously you can't just go there on your own. You have to be guided uh, just so you know the areas to stay away from and the areas you're allowed into, that type of thing, right? Oh, absolutely. It's quite strict the way it's controlled. You have to uh, apply to go and there's only certain companies that have a license to allow uh, you to go and you have to apply in advance. You can't just show up and go. And then when you do go, you're going with a certified guide and you actually go through two military checkpoints and uh, they make sure they check that, uh, you know, you're not carrying anything in or anything out. You've got proper shoes on and they want you to wear long sleeve shirts and, and, uh, and then they check you on the way out. They scan you, make sure you're, you know, not glowing and all that kind of stuff. And uh, um, it sounds a little bit ridiculous, and but it's the, the, the process itself is just sort of you feel like you're part of that movie, uh, the HBO series. Mm-hmm. And uh, they take you off to see the abandoned school and the abandoned church and the, the Ferris wheel. You know, they had just built a, it was like the Fort McMurray of, of, uh, of Ukraine, uh, where they had just built this whole big town around an industry mm-hmm. that was just booming and uh, they had just they hadn't even opened the ferris wheel yet the the schools they were just built they weren't even open so they were abandoned before uh uh anyone even started using them and and then now you go there and you walk around and it's like you feel like you're walking in, in the in the walking dead you know set you know abandoned buildings you know trees growing out of windows <laughs> it's uh it's really. It must be just like you said. It's just weird and fascinating at the same time, and and yeah. spooky too. I would think. It is spooky, yeah. And you know, animals. There's wild animals. There's dogs. There's um, uh, a fox. We met the Chernobyl fox that comes and greets uh, tourists at the at the at this one at the. There's a sign, a big "Welcome to Pripyat" sign, which is the town, mm-hmm. and the 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 buses stop there to take a picture. And the fox knows, you know, how to, you know, get some food. So he comes up and meets the tourists. <laughs> he learned. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, there's something to be said about uh, the animals that have come back there. There's some ladies that have come back to live in these villages and around there. That, you know, they're doing okay and they're fine. So, you know, uh, it's not all doom and gloom. And nature is really reclaimed. I mean, seeing how nature reclaimed the, the town is is also part of the fascination. Hmm. So. Uh, how long does the tour take? Uh, it's, it's a it's a day trip. You obviously you can't s- spend the night there or anything like that. Yeah, that's right. It's a day trip from Cave, and uh, I think it's like about an hour and a half or two hours drive up there, and then you spend the whole day there. Uh, they bring in lunch. They you know they bring in food, and uh, um, we snuck in a little flask of vodka uh, <laughs> so we could you know. You know, say it, say it, say a toast, 
um, raise a glass. And then uh, we were home, you know, I think 7 o'clock we were home that evening. Uh-huh. And uh, then we went out on the town in Kiev. So um, <laughs> you can stay overnight, not right in the town, but uh, small groups are able to book um, private accommodations just outside of the town. So if mm-hmm. you want to go back, like uh, f- photographers want to spend a little bit more time there. So I think you can go for up to three or four days. And uh, uh, they've opened up a new thing now where you can actually go into the control room number four where everything happened. And uh, that's a special extra thing that you couldn't, it would be tough to fit into one day if you're mm-hmm. only going for one day. Well, I was going to ask, uh, how close can you get to the actual power plant itself? Well, when we went, you know, we were outside. There's a monument to the firefighters, and you Mm -hmm. can see the great big dome that's kept it covered. And, you know, you're a few hundred meters back from the power plant, and the radiation is is low. Um, uh, Like, the radiation is higher at some places off in the forest than Mm -hmm. it is right up close to the power plant, because it's where the, like like we said, where the radioactive clouds went. Yeah. Rather than, you know, the dome is keeping things protected. And uh, so, but uh, yeah, now apparently you can go into reactor room four, but I didn't get to do that when I was uh, there. I mean, they're slowly evolving the tourism there. And Mm -hmm. like we said, it's dark tourism. It's sort of tragedy tourism, but you know, you got to, you got to learn from history. And if we don't tell people about it and keep showing it to people, you never, it doesn't hit you hard enough to make you remember it Mm -hmm. and try and learn from it. So, it's like people go to Auschwitz yep. or World War or World War II uh, sites mm-hmm. or you know Babanyar or different tragedy sites like uh, uh it's not meant to glorify no. the thing it's meant to learn you're meant to learn about it what was the one thing that stood out for you well you know i think the nature i really think that was the thing that i mean one of the highlights was that we climbed up on top of one of the old apartment buildings. Like we went up the back stairs of an old apartment building and our guide took us there and we were up on the roof overlooking the the town mm-hmm. and it was all grown over in trees and there wasn't a sound. <laughs> Silence. And, uh, and just how nature overtook the place. And you really felt like you were in a, like a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> and there's not that many tours uh, there during the day, right? There's not that many people all at once, is there? No, no. They keep it, they keep it limited, and you ha- that's why you have to book in advance. Mm-hmm. And the guides know how to, you know, create that atmosphere by, you know, spreading you out and not, yeah. not overlapping. So I, I highly recommend it for the adventurous soul. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about, yeah, your tours. You run tours to Ukraine. Obviously, you can add this in. It's not part of a a typical uh, itinerary, though, is it? Yeah, that's right, because not everybody has the appetite for it. So Mm -hmm. we, you know, if uh, most of our tours do start in Kiev, and so you can uh, come a day early or go back to Kiev at the end if you want to add on a little bit. But, uh, um, yeah, our tours go all over Ukraine. We have our most popular tours is the Great Ukraine Tour, which... It's some of the big highlights, Kiev, Odessa on the Black Sea, the Carpathian Mountains, and Lviv in the west. Um, and then we have some other options for tours, which are shorter versions. Eastern Ukraine is very popular. Uh, pretty soon we're going to start 
pushing our Christmas in Ukraine. People love to go skiing and experience the Ukrainian Christmas traditions. And so check out our site mm-hmm. uh, for all these different options. And uh, plus we can do private custom tours for people that say, you know, look, I, I just want to go with my family and our own travel bubble. You know, we want to yeah. go at our own time, get a van and a driver and a translator, and we can help you out with that too. Cobblestonefreeway.ca is the website, and Vincent Reese is the CEO and founder of Cobblestone Freeway Tours. Uh, it was a pleasure to chat, Vincent. Thank you. Thanks, Randy. Take care. Have a wonderful day. And that is this week's Informed Traveler podcast. Remember, this is the podcast version of the Informed Traveler radio show heard each week on Chorus Radio. You can find more information on the show at our website at theinformedtraveler.ca. So thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. And if you want to drop me a line, my email is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler. Or you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.com.